This is an ABC podcast. Hello there, I'm Tom Switzer. Great to have your company. And this is Between the Lines. Well, as 2022 draws to a close, most people will be glad to see the back of it. The post-Cold War era has resolutely ended with a Russian attack on Ukraine and China shaking its fist at Taiwan. Much of the Western world has been additionally destabilised by higher energy prices and an acceleration of inflation. America, it's fair to say, remains a polarised and divided society. And so is the European Union, with individual polities from Italy to Hungary railing against the Brussels orthodoxy. In the Anglosphere, the death of Queen Elizabeth II signalled the closure of an epoch and promoted deep introspection. Now, to address the year in review from a global perspective, let's turn to our panel. Peter Jennings was head of the Australian Strategic Policy Institute in Canberra from 2012 until this year. During the previous 15 years, he worked in senior roles in the Australian Public Service on defence and national security. G'day, Peter. Hi, Tom. And Mary Kissel is Executive Vice President and Senior Policy Advisor at Stevens Inc. in the United States. She's also a former Chief Strategist to the former US Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Mary, welcome back to Between the Lines. Oh, it's great to be with you, Tom and Peter. Now, let's start with Ukraine and Russia's invasion earlier this year. Mary, is there any end to this war in sight? You know, look, we we clearly allowed the West deterrence to erode. And that's why Putin felt emboldened to invade Ukraine again, because recall that he's done it under three prior U.S. administrations, in fact, Republican and Democrat. Question about, though, you know, will the war end soon? Well, certainly the Ukrainians have demonstrated an extraordinary courage and will to fight. I think the answer to your question hinges on whether or not uh, the United States in particular and Europe to a secondary degree will provide the armaments and the intelligence and other materiel that will allow the Ukrainians to win. Because if if they were properly equipped, I think it's clear now after many months of fighting, they could very well win. If we don't do that, if we lose our nerve or if domestic U.S. politics gets in the way and we somehow cut back on what we're providing them today, And I think the war could potentially drag on. But, Tom, that being said, don't rule out a surprise. We could wake up tomorrow and Vladimir Putin could be gone or he could be dead. It's an opaque regime. He's uh, certainly disliked by many in the circle around him. And there's always that possibility that one day we could wake up, he would be gone, and perhaps the war would be over. Yeah, if Putin is indeed toppled Peter Jennings, Is it fair to say that his successor could be just as nationalist and hawkish as Putin was? Well, if Putin is toppled, and I agree with Mary, I think there's um, a real chance of that in 2023, and we begin to see some signs of dissension um, in the circles around him uh, at the end of 2022. If he's toppled, it will be because of his idiocy in launching Russia into a war that has been disastrous and basically gone against every strategic objective that Putin said was important to him uh, over the course of this year. And that to me would suggest that perhaps his replacement is going to be a person that wants to take Russia back from that wartime experience uh, because it's been a failure for the country, a a disaster for the country. So look, it's hard to know. Um, uh, I mean, the truth of the matter is is that in Russia uh, and in the former Soviet Union, the the changing of leaders was always um, chaotic, unpredictable, hard to see from the West to understand precisely what was going on. And there are obviously particularly prominent at the moment and a number of individuals around Putin who who probably would be worse than him if they became leaders of the country. But, um, you know, a, a Russia engaged in a major war with a, a large European neighbour 
is not sustainable. Uh, Russia cannot survive if it continues to operate in this way. Uh, and so I think ultimately um, it could be a very difficult and bumpy transition. Um, you know, Putin will go and, and we will at least have the hope that there will be a Russian leader uh, that the democracies can deal with. Well, there's no question the world is becoming an intensely dangerous place, but it's it's communist China, arguably. I mean, many guests on this program have made this clear throughout the year. It's China that poses a much greater threat. Mary Kissel, Kevin Rudd has been a guest on this program a few times this year, and he says uh, China's wolf warrior diplomacy has failed, and we should expect a global charm offensive from Beijing, but their goal to dominate Asia remains. Your thoughts? With respect to the Prime Minister, there's actually too much focus on the quote-unquote wolf warrior diplomacy. That really has never been the source of Chinese power, in my view. The real twist that uh, the CCP has put on uh, Cold War tactics was to entice the West in and to co-opt some of our most powerful corporate lobbies and some of our most powerful industries, namely Wall Street uh, Silicon Valley and Hollywood. And so there are now entrenched interests, not just in the United States, but in Australia and Europe and the rest of the world that have a monetary reason to want to continue the relationship and they place pressure on elected politicians to do so. There are also admittedly an enormous and complex web of influence operations that are going on right now in the United States, Australia, and other, other democracies around the world, trying to influence us at a local level. So, yeah, has the wolf warrior diplomacy failed? Of course, because it's a totalitarian regime that has uh, no ability to convince. They simply bully. But we haven't quite gotten to the point yet in our politics, at least in the United States, to admit that communist China is an enemy. We keep saying it's a competitor. It's not a competitor. Competition relies on rules of the, of the game that both sides respect. That's not what this is. China's been very clear that they want to supplant the United States as the world's preeminent power, and they'll break every rule and bully everyone um, in order to get there. And uh, so it's, it's good that we've woken up. Uh, that's very important. Um, but I fear that next year you will still see this instinct, whether it be in Washington or Canberra or, or Berlin, most prominently, hmm. to say, you know what, they're not quite an enemy yet. Let's let's still try to see if we can cooperate with them. And I'm afraid it'll be the triumph over experience. Well, on that note, I mean, much of the Australian media, and, and this is the view widely held in business circles, they're celebrating a thaw in Sino-American relations and sino Australian relations because of President Xi's meetings with both Biden and Albanese on the sidelines of those global events just a few weeks ago. Peter Jennings, is that how you read things? Absolutely not. No, Tom, and, and uh, more for all the people that do see it that way, because all they're doing is focusing on, you know, the day's media grab. Uh, a 32-minute meeting really changes nothing when that's compared to, you know, the broad nature of China's strategic objectives, none of which has, have changed, right? China is still engaging in its military build-up. It's still uh, occupying those islands in the South China Sea, still threatening Taiwan and all of its uh, land-based neighbours. As Xi Jinping says in every speech he gives to uh, to the military, preparing for war, and to uh, think that a you know a, a, a pull aside meeting uh, at the G20 somehow now says everything's back to normal is is simply ridiculous. And even the Australian business community shouldn't be fooled by that. I'm disappointed, I have to say, Tom, at, at the glibness with which um, a lot of this is being reported uh, in, in Australia. But what I can say is that in our intelligence community, in government, uh, in the opposition, th there's no such naivety. There, there is an understanding that China presents still the big strategic risk to, to the region. Yes, it's great that the leaders uh, met and talked for a little bit, but really th there is no fundamental change to dealing with the challenge that China presents. And we should stress that uh, Penny Wong, the foreign minister, her active diplomacy, uh, building bridges with the Pacific Island nations to counter growing Chinese influence in the region probably just reaffirms your point, Peter. But strong resistance to China's aggressiveness, that does require a lead from a united and determined America. 
many pundits say the sheer polarisation of American politics, Peter, it's so extreme that unifying the country seems beyond any of the nation's leading politicians. Again, your thoughts, Peter Jennings. I, I don't think that's right, uh, Tom. You know, I, 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 reflecting uh, uh, on this uh, uh, program, I, I thought back, well, consider America 50 years ago in 1972, uh, you know, coming out badly from a war in Vietnam, Watergate not that far away to bring Richard Nixon down. Uh, and a few years earlier, we had the uh, Nixon announced the, the Guam Doctrine, which basically said to countries in Asia, look, you're on your own. We, 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 we won't be defending you. You've got to be able to look after your own defence and security. You know, that was a time of turmoil and deep internal unhappiness in the United States. And yet it emerged from that, you know, just a couple of decades later to essentially be the unipolar superpower leading, leading the world. Um, America is uh, a country that I think uh, is written off far too quickly by its its detractors, uh, particularly in Australia. It, it will come through these these challenges, uh, and and I also sort of think, Tom, you know, America is is it's a kind of a feisty, difficult combative place. It had a revolution. It had a civil war. Um, they're not they're not like us. Um, that's just the nature of American democracy. Mary Kissel. There is actually a broad bipartisan consensus on Capitol Hill that has been built over a period of years that China is not our friend, that we cannot do a nuclear deal um, with Iran, and that Russian aggression um, must be countered and, and rolled back. That bipartisan consensus is strong and, it, and it's continuing to grow. And that's a good thing. So I think when you read the media coverage of, you know, the latest um, scandal of the day, uh, it's important to keep in mind that um, at least uh, in the halls of, of Congress and also you know, increasingly in our C-suites across the country, people are waking up and, and realizing that national security isn't a partisan thing. And polarization, though, Mary Kissel, it's not just driven by Donald Trump. If you think about Elon Musk's release of those internal emails relating to Twitter's 2020 censorship, I mean, censorship of the Hunter Biden laptop scandal, that's been pretty much ignored by the mainstream media. So what does that drama tell you about America's political and media culture? couple of important points to note. Um, first of all, Twitter is a, a private company. It can censor whomever it likes. It can even be hypocritical and embarrass itself and have a lousy stock price and uh, a terrible board that doesn't exert right oversight and run it for the shareholders. Um, the question in this particular scandal, I think, is um, did Twitter censor prominent public voices at the behest of government officials? And do they warrant the protections that um, internet companies enjoy under our laws, where internet companies are not liable like newspapers are, for instance? And, you know, I think it speaks to the vibrancy of America's democracy that you did have Elon Musk come in and buy the place and start to open up the files. And now we're learning what actually happened. Now, that might have come at a great human cost given some of the individuals who reportedly were censored. But eventually the truth does come out and we have a creative capitalism here still for now. <laughs> and, um, and, it is and it is America, by the way, that invented Twitter, um, which is you know, an important point. Uh, and you want that stuff invented in America or at least we do as Americans. <laughs> um, but, you know, that, that innovation is quite important, particularly when we face the kinds of challenges that you and Peter are outlining. Okay, now the fun bit of the program, political winners and losers on the global stage. Peter, who's your political winner for 2022? And I think for the decade also, Tom, uh, Volodymyr Zelensky, uh, I think it absolutely has to be. Uh, he is the argument for why we need more stand-up comics and fewer lawyers in parliaments all around <laughs> the world. Uh, a man who knows how to talk to his own people and, and to the world and who uh, didn't want to lift out. He wanted more ammunition. He's, he's my man of the year for 2022. Okay, so Zelensky from Ukraine is Peter Jennings, political winner of the year. Yours, Mary Kissel. 
Oh, Jay, he took my name. Um, <laughs> I mean, it's, it's it's obviously Zelensky. I mean, what a remarkable uh, show of courage. And, you know, you have to ask, where would Ukraine be today if they didn't have him at the helm? Um, would the nation have rallied around to the degree that they have and been able to suffer the deprivations that they have suffered? But look, I, I'll give you another name just so that we can have two. Um, that's Jimmy Lai. My friend yeah. and, hmm. and mentor from Hong Kong. Who, it's a great uh, point. We've hardly heard about his predicament, but just summarize his uh, his, his his tragic situation right now, Mary. Well, Jimmy Lai, born in China, made his career and fortune in Hong Kong out of his own hard work. Founded a media company uh, that was the avatar of free speech. He became prominent in the pro democracy movement. Advocated peaceful protests. And for all of his troubles and all of his billions, he didn't leave. He stayed in Hong Kong because uh, he said, I'm an old man and my life is mostly over. And if I leave, you know, uh, what have we all been fighting for? I'm staying. Chinese Communist Party and its um, uh, proxies in Hong Kong uh, have persecuted him and his family and thrown him in jail. And they came out with a verdict recently in a so-called fraud case that was an absolute farce. And it just goes to show that, unfortunately, um, Hong Kong is not just another Chinese city. As Jimmy puts it, Hong Kong is fighting the Cold War with China behind China's lines. And as Jimmy repeatedly would say, and you need to pay attention because they're coming for you next. Yes, Jimmy Lai, uh, a great uh, human rights fighter and um, press freedom advocate, uh, Paul Jagot, your former editor at the Wall Street Journal, recently wrote a very important tribute in the Wall Street Journal to Jimmy Lai. What about the losers of the year, the political losers, Peter Jennings? <laughs> well, sorry, Mary, if this uh, uh, picks your choice as well. Oh, but no. I think very clearly <laughs> Vladimir Putin, uh, who has been in the space of eight months, uh, shown to have been fundamentally wrong on every strategic aim that he set for himself and his country in uh, invading Ukraine has brought uh, has doubled the length of NATO's border against against Russia uh, and has now brought himself to a point where I think he has has become fatally wounded and vulnerable as we move into 2023 um, he's he's my loser of the year mm. Mary Kissel loser of the year I would say it's it has to be Donald Trump and mm. that's not actually my verdict that that's the verdict of the American voter it is extraordinary to have a U.S. president with uh, such low approval ratings have a such a successful midterm election. And um, I think it is universally acknowledged on the left and the right that the reason that happened is because the candidates that Donald Trump backed, the voters rejected, mm -hmm. whether it was, uh, you know, Herschel uh, Walker in Virginia or, or Dr. Georgia. Oz in Pennsylvania. And so, uh, you know, the relaunch of the presidential campaign did not go well. It didn't generate a lot of enthusiasm. So I think, you know, it's unfortunate, but yeah, the, the loser for me has to be Trump. Well, doesn't it say something that no one here has mentioned Britain's political dramas? I mean, the country had three prime ministers in a little over six weeks, which makes Australia look very good. I'd say Liz <laughs> Truss. Liz Trust was Prime Minister for only 40 days. Crikey. Okay, political predictions for 2023. Peter Jennings. I think we're going to see, uh, including over the northern winter, further uh, Ukrainian success on the battlefields, uh, particularly in the south of the country. Uh, that is is going to see uh, Ukraine emerge into a stronger position as we move into, uh, into 2023. So that, that would be my key prediction. And Mary, your thoughts for next year? Well, unfortunately, I, I think we're going to see more of the chaos abroad um, because the United States will fail uh, to restore its deterrence. And so that means that you'll see more Iranian support of the Russians and closer ties between China and um, Russia. And you'll see also Xi Jinping try to drive a wedge uh, between uh, the West and its allies, whether it's between the United States and Europe or uh, the U.S. and Saudi Arabia or um, Australia and some of its uh, Asian neighbors. 
And so I think, you know, you need to really b strap in on the foreign policy side and on the economic side, Tom, I, I just don't see any good news here. Mask of fiscal expansionism and monetary adventurism. And now we're paying the price with um, extraordinarily high and in, in persistent inflation. And I see no nation around the world, no leadership to try to grow our way out of what looks to be a, a, a recessionary period in 2023, where unfortunately the poorest in our societies will suffer the most. Well, maybe it's no longer a joke to say that money grows on trees to be continued. <laughs> Mary, Peter, great to have you on Between the Lines as always. Thanks so much, Tom. Thanks, Mary. Thanks, Tom and Peter. That was Mary Kissel, a former advisor to Secretary of State Mike Pompeo, and she's Executive Vice President and Senior Policy Advisor at Stevens, Inc. And Peter Jennings is a former head of the Australian Security Policy Institute in Canberra. Up next, Indonesia's democratic recession. Well, since the fall of Suharto nearly 25 years ago, Indonesia has been widely hailed as a tolerant liberal democracy, a role model for the Muslim world. However, that image has been recently tarnished, not least because of the passage of a criminal code that restricts political freedom and prevents anyone in Indonesia from having extramarital sex. So how do we account for the erosion of civil liberties in the world's most populist Muslim-majority country and the world's third-largest democracy? Ken Satyawan is Senior Lecturer in Indonesian and Asian Studies at the University of Melbourne, her most recent book is Politics in Contemporary Indonesia, Institutional Change, Policy Challenges and Democratic Decline. That's co-authored with Associate Professor Dirk Tomza from La Trobe University. Ken, welcome to ABC's Radio National. Hi, Tom. Thanks for having me. Oh, it's our pleasure. Now, sex outside of marriage and living together without being married in Indonesia, that will become crimes punishable with jail time. Why has this criminal code been passed? I think it's uh, really important to recognise that revisions of Indonesia's criminal code have been on the agenda for a very long time. So the previous code was based on Dutch law. It was drafted during the colonial period in 1918. So a revision, the need to decolonize that code has been on the agenda on and off ever since Indonesia proclaimed its independence. And in fact, this code was supposed to have been passed three years ago, but at the time, massive protests led to the postponement. And there are indeed many controversial articles in this new criminal code, including the ban on sex outside marriage. Okay, this ban on sex outside of marriage, it's taken a long time to be overturned, but I'm, am I right in saying that these laws won't come into effect for another three years? Correct. So there is a three-year period now um, in which implementing regulations will be formulated. Why so the delay? I believe this uh, is a procedural matter and it, of course, also will allow for potential challenges um, uh, of the code to be heard in the courts. Yet sex is a private matter. Many human rights groups argue that to criminalise sex outside of marriage is a retrograde step for a democracy. What do you think? Sex is absolutely a private matter. It is not an issue for the state. Uh, the ban on sex outside marriage is a violation on the right to privacy, which is an international human rights principle, international human rights principles that Indonesia has also signed up to. Morality provisions in general can be easily misused to criminalize victims of sexual assault. It can, they can be used to target members of the LGBT community, remembering also that gay marriage is not recognized in Indonesia. So if we think of this as a step back for democracy, it's also really important to be aware that it's um, not just about criminalizing sex outside marriage. 
The new code threatens many other civil liberties, and you refer to that in your introduction, um, including freedom of expression and association, press freedom, freedom of religion. It has impacts on women's rights and uh, bodily integrity. It can also negatively impact on the environment. So um, I think those are also really important issues to consider, as well as the fact that the new code was passed with very little transparency and public participation. And all of that, I believe, are indicators of democratic backsliding. Well, you mentioned that charge of insulting a, a sitting president. That carries a prison term of as long as three years. Ken, does the government draw a distinction between insults and criticism? Um, well, it's actually not just insulting or defaming the president. It's also the government, uh, the vice president, state institutions and public authorities. Um, and civil society actors in Indonesia and legal experts have been very critical of these defamation articles because it is very difficult to distinguish what exactly is defamation and what is legitimate criticism. Uh, the defamation provisions in the criminal code in, in Indonesia, the new criminal code, lack the necessary safeguards, um, and they're very loosely formulated, and therefore they are open to a wide range of interpretations. And that is also really problematic from the perspective of Indonesia's international human rights obligations. So does the government actually draw a distinction between insults and criticism? In the past years, we have seen very worrying developments in Indonesia where we have seen increasing pressure on freedom of expression and the willingness of the government uh, to use a wide range of strategies to silence its critics. And these strategies include uh, the use of laws to intimidate and coerce critics uh, of the government and other powerful political and economic actors, whether these are activists, lawyers, researchers, journalists, or even just ordinary citizens. They have been targeted uh, through these laws. We've also seen forced cancellations of book launches, film screenings that uh, supposedly address sensitive uh, topics, and many activists in Indonesia are subject to physical um, surveillance and social media surveillance. Mm. Um, so uh, there's definitely been, uh, this falls into a longer trend of pressure on freedom of expression in Indonesia. I mentioned earlier the downfall of Suharto, hard to believe, nearly 25 years ago. I think it's May next year, marks the 25th anniversary. And in the 2000s and the 2010s, especially under the leadership of um, Udiono, this is SBY, the, Indonesia was a role model for tolerance, inclusion, and to this day, President Joko Widodo, he does like to project Indonesia as a modern Muslim democracy. You're arguing these changes hurt human rights in Indonesia. What was the turning point? When did all this start to happen, this rising religious conservatism across Indonesia? I think it's actually really important to be critical about the exact nature and extent of Indonesia's transition to democracy. Uh, so I think that's one thing. I think uh, there are, have been a lot of um, developments in Indonesia uh, where we have seen uh, these, you know, uh, negative impacts on human rights and on civil liberties, but they actually have their roots not not just in the Jokowi presidency. We can trace them back much further. Uh, so these new changes, this new criminal code absolutely hurts the promotion and protection of human rights in Indonesia. It will definitely have an impact on women, on religious minorities, political minorities, LGBT people, and you know, several, several of the freedoms that I just already mentioned, freedom of expression, freedom of association. And uh, that is, uh, you know, despite Indonesia's persistent projections as uh, wanting uh, to see itself or wanting to be seen as a Muslim democracy uh, and as, you know, progressive in the region, this is definitely uh, an issue of concern. Ken, I've read some Indonesian scholars say that these changes about, if you like, codifying the conservatism of Indonesia, the religious conservatism, and the president is willing at least to give in to hardline Muslim feelings in exchange for economic stability in the country. Does that make sense to you? Uh, you know, look, it does make sense. Um, I believe that the the, the passage of this code is a reflection of increased political and societal conservatism in Indonesia. Um, I think it's a bit about a bit more than just economic stability. It's about political stability and broad support for the government. Um, in fact, the vice president, Maruf Amin, played a very key role in pushing for this criminal code. Now, as you may know, Maruf Amin um, uh, represents conservative Islam. He's a 
senior cleric of the Nahdlatul Ulama, one of the two largest Muslim mass organizations in Indonesia. This organization has benefited a lot from uh, the Jokowi presidency as part of Jokowi's efforts to build alliances with Islamic organizations. And I believe it, it reflects um, an unwillingness of the government uh, to upset conservative Muslims, especially ahead of mm. the presidential elections in 2024. It is also a response to developments in Indonesia earlier this year. So actually earlier this year, we saw the passage of quite a progressive law, the anti-sexual violence law, which really was a very important um, law reform in Indonesia. Um, it was very important for women's rights. It um, uh, criminalizes nine forms of sexual violence that are not covered by existing laws. Now that law was passed among very strong opposition from conservative groups and political parties. Uh, and that fitted really into the government agenda to push back on conservative Islam. But at the same time, these conservative groups have said, well, we want something in return. So it's also very much a, a trade-off. And I think we need to see it in those political developments. Okay. To the extent these trends continue and Indonesia becomes more religious, if you like, and the courts can't overturn these changes that we've just been talking about, to the extent these trends continue, will these new laws turn away foreign investment from Indonesia? In terms of the uh, morality issues, I think, you know, it may have some impact. It's definitely not good public relations. It can make it less appealing for foreigners to go to Indonesia or deal with Indonesia in, in other forms, such as business and education. At the same time, foreign investment is very important to the Indonesian government. Indonesia will want to attract foreign investment as part of its post-pandemic recovery, as well as um, to fund very costly projects, such as the building of a new capital city. And foreign investment has actually been made easier in recent years in Indonesia, amongst others through the passage of the so-called omnibus law on job creation um, a couple of years ago. Um, so uh, I, I think in, in that sense, it, it is unlikely um, to completely turn away foreign investment, but there might, might, might very well be an impact uh, for sure. And just finally, uh, what about Australian tourism? I mean, just say, for example, the consequences for unmarried Australian tourists who want to share a room together uh, once these laws are enacted. The consequence or of or the penalty for sex outside marriage under the new criminal code in Indonesia is a maximum imprisonment of one year or a fine of 10 million rupiah. However, the prohibition of sex outside marriage, as well as cohabitation, actually requires that a report is filed by family members, so for instance, a parent, a spouse, or a child. So that makes it unlikely that this code will be um, applied to tourists. In fact, the Balinese governor, Wayan Koster, has commented that there will be no checks on marital statuses at, at tourist accommodations or inspections by um, officials such as the police or community groups. Well, to be continued, Ken, lovely to have you on Radio National. Thanks so much for having me, Tom. That was Ken Setiawan, Senior Lecturer in Indonesian and Asian Studies at the University of Melbourne. Up next, China's covert intimidation campaign. Well, for mine, the most important political book published in the world this year was written by an Australian. And the author, get this, is only in his 20s. The book is called Spies and Lies, How China's Greatest Covert Operations Fooled the World. It's published by Hardy Grant. It's a groundbreaking expose of elite influence operations by China's little-known Ministry of State Security. And the author, Alex Josky, has been interviewed, published, and reviewed in leading global media outlets from The Guardian in the UK to The Wall Street Journal in the US and NBC News to Foreign Affairs magazine. According to Mike Gallagher, he's a leading member of the US Congressional Committee on Intelligence, he says, quote, when Alex Josky speaks, governments need to listen. 
And remember all this global praise and attention for a young Australian scholar of part ethnic Chinese background. He's still in his 20s. Alex, it's a heck of a wrap. Welcome to Between the Lines. Thanks so much for the introduction and thanks for having me on. Our pleasure. Now, your book deals with the Chinese Communist Party's subtle and covert attempts to tasks its spies to deceive the world. That's your thesis. Tell us more. That's right. I think most people, when they think about spies and espionage and intelligence operations, they'll they'll think of James Bond. They'll think of people stealing technology, of hacking, you know, cyber espionage. Uh, trying to penetrate other intelligence agencies. But I've argued in this book that China's Ministry of State Security, it does all of those things. But the thing that it really excels at and the thing that I think has really been overlooked uh, is its influence operations. And and these have really changed the way that people understand China. Uh, These have pushed an idea that China is more reformist and and was liberalizing when it really wasn't. Uh, And they had real consequence and real impact on how countries like the United States set their policies towards China. And you deal with this issue about influencing opinion in the West. Now, let's deal with some of these efforts to shape and soften Western responses to China's global rise. Now, you deal with a, in one chapter, you deal with a vice minister who charmed Westerners. He was serving as a journalist in London and Washington. What's his story? Yeah, so this guy's name to many people is Yuan Guang, but I found out through my research that it was actually a fake name that a top MSS officer called Yu Fang uh, was using. And he was a specialist in intelligence operations and influence, particularly against English-speaking countries. He himself spoke English with, with a British accent, spent a lot of time overseas, and really led uh, the Chinese government's efforts to build up this influence apparatus in some ways. And one of his earliest engagements in this space was actually an effort to really limit and restrict George Soros's ability to promote reformism and liberalism in China uh, during the 1980s, when Soros set up a sort of pro-reform foundation. And then pretty quickly, the MSS infiltrated it, frustrated Soros's efforts. And all this was led by this exact uh, MSS officer, Yuan Guang or Yu Feng. So this uh, vice minister who was, you know, winning over Westerners while he was serving as it were pretending to be a journalist in London and in Washington, did they catch on to who he really was? Yeah, I ha- haven't been able to tell. Uh, it was quite a while ago that he was posted overseas. Yeah. But one of the really remarkable things uh, that stood out in this research is that even in the cases where, you know, through interviews or, or other sorts of research, I determined that you know, the FBI or, or the CIA actually knew some of these people were MSS officers and, and could see some of the engagements they were involved in and some of the relationships they built. Not enough was actually done to to intervene in these activities and to stop this influence campaign. We've heard about it, this issue before your book was published, but Beijing's attempts to infiltrate overseas students and dissident groups. Tell us about the good Australian examples. This is sort of how I got started on this whole issue of Chinese Communist Party influence work. I was a student at ANU not so long ago, in fact, and I I saw that the the university's Chinese Students and Scholars Association was coordinating closely with the Chinese embassy. Uh, It was pushing up propaganda. It was censoring publications that were critical of the Chinese Communist Party, holding rallies for visiting Chinese leaders. And then when I reported on this, uh, they responded by trying to follow and harass me uh, and a friend who was a Chinese dissident refugee from China. It's a very real phenomenon, but I was only witnessing sort of, in a way, the softer end of it Uh, in countries like the United States, and I'm sure Australia, uh, there's been public exposure and evidence of actual operations by Chinese security and intelligence officers to travel overseas, rock up at the front door of some of these dissidents, uh, harass them, spy on them, uh, mm. try to blackmail them and so on. And presumably encourage them to come out onto the streets to protest any government move. And I remember this back in 2015, 2016, around the time of the Hague's decision to rule against China on the South China Sea controversy 
and had those territorial disputes with the Philippines. Remember, a lot of ethnic Chinese students coming out very strongly against any Australian attempt to support freedom of navigation patrols through that contentious 12 nautical mile zone in the South China Sea. Do you remember that? Yeah, that, there was there were quite substantial protests in Melbourne, you know, organised by a couple of organisations close to the Chinese Communist Party uh, and its influence apparatus. Um, and you know, it's a real it's a real challenge for universities in um, bringing in Chinese students, you know, while while trying to sort of protect them. I think from the influence that the Chinese Communist Party still tries to maintain. In in my as in my time as a student, I came across a lot of Chinese students who were pro-Australian, who were quite liberal and, and, and had a lot of democratic ideas. But I think they really felt that they couldn't voice these ideas without fearing uh, consequences from the Chinese government. It sort of brings to mind this, this campaign, the CCP campaign that you're describing. I mean, do you think it is analogous to the, say, the early 40s and the 50s across the West when Stalin, Joseph Stalin and the Soviet communists had agents all over the place? I think it's quite similar. Uh, there are a lot of differences in in the way that the Chinese government engages with the US government compared to the, the situation in the Cold War and with the Soviet Union. But I think in terms of the, the level of espionage and intelligence work and the importance of these activities, you know, according to public statements by Mike Burgess, the director general of ASIO, for example, mm. the level of espionage going on in Australia has actually surpassed Cold War levels. So wow. it, it might even be more intense than that period. Alex, you mentioned Henry Kissinger, the, he's now 99, the former National Security Advisor and Secretary of State to Presidents Nixon and Ford. He's had an organisation, Kissinger Associates, among others, that have charged business executives for introductions to Chinese leaders after he left government service in the mid to late 70s. You say similar things about Bob Hawke, Australia's Prime Minister from 1983 to 1991, in his post-political career. What's wrong with that behaviour? Some people might just say that's just networking. Yeah, in the case of of Bob Hawke, he he returned to China after leaving prime ministership and after the 1989 Tiananmen massacre, he was invited back in I think 1993 by an organization uh, led in part by the same MSS officer we talked about earlier, uh, Yuan Guang, mm -hmm. you know, was his alias, uh, and quickly entered business with these uh, MSS officers and their associates to do the, exactly what Kissinger has been doing, you know, brokering access to leaders and officials of the Chinese Communist Party. I mean, the problem here is really when it steps into covert influence, when it's a way of shaping perceptions of China. I don't think that Bob Hawke, for example, I don't think he would have realized exactly what he got involved in. These are professional clandestine agents uh, that he met with and who would have done a very good job of, I think, hiding their affiliations. Uh, but the simple fact is that by entering this relationship with them, he was setting himself up to be used by them, uh, to have them wield financial leverage over them, over him, and also to use him simply to change how people understood China in the aftermath of the Tiananmen massacre, present China as liberalizing, as opening up, as a priority for international engagement, when at the end of the day, it was still run by the Chinese Communist Party, which had never really given up its intentions uh, to maintain one party rule and to maintain a communist dictatorship. In fairness, the Hawke view would have been reflecting mainstream Western opinion. I mean, I remember both sides of politics in Washington and in Canberra. These are the um, political capitals I've studied closely over my uh, career. The overwhelming consensus view among Republicans, Democrats, Labor, Liberal politicians was precisely that. And this is Columbia University's Andrew Nathan. He's one of America's most distinguished sinologists. He reviewed your book in Foreign Affairs, the prominent New York-based magazine. He says, uh, Alex, that many Westerners named in your book, like, like your Hawks and your Kissingers, they could, quote, plausibly argue that influence goes in both directions and that their contacts with China make their understanding of the country more, not less, well-informed. Your response to Professor Nathan? 
Yeah, I really respect Andrew Nathan's work and uh, he's done a, a lot of really pivotal scholarship on China on matters like the Tiananmen Massacre. Uh, where I disagree with him here is just that, you know, people can engage with China effectively. But the problem with the cases I write about in the book is you had, on the one hand, undercover professional intelligence officers, and on the other hand, essentially private individuals, retired government officials, scholars, people like Bob Hawke, uh, engaging from our side who didn't have an intelligence apparatus backing their, them up, guiding their activities, giving them sort of strategic directions and training. So it's really not a fair match when you have professional intelligence officers trying to manipulate, blackmail and recruit people pitched against sort of individual citizens. Uh, and what, what was clear to me in many cases is that people really had been uh, misled by their engagements with these undercover intelligence officers and their proxies. They came out of these meetings believing that China was close to democratization. Uh, you could, I could see these MSS officers going into the US embassy and talking about how they thought democracy was inevitable in China when this was clearly contradicting their actual beliefs and it was clearly designed to deceive people. Other scholars, such as Sydney University's historian James Curran, they say that Australia has been, quote, panicking about China, that in 2019, Canberra entered, quote, the world of paranoia, we've morphed into a paranoid syndrome, and that our China debate, uh, this is at least during the coalition rule, has been close to, quote, losing all sense of rationality and proportion. How would you respond to Professor Curran? I think around the world, we're now seeing more and more governments actually move towards Australia's side and, and really come to Australia to study what we've gained from changing our China policy over the past couple of years. This is not just happening in the United States, but also in Japan, in Canada, and across Europe and, and other parts of, of Asia as well. So I think that governments around the world are really recognizing that Australia did something right in changing its China policy, in tackling this problem of foreign covert political interference. Uh, so that would really just be my response, that uh, this is a problem that's now recognized around the world and is fundamentally changing how governments set their policies on China. Karen would say that we shouldn't have been panicking. We should have just had confidence in our institutions. And ultimately, our institutions did prevail. Again, how would you respond to that argument? I think Australia's turn was a lot less inevitable than, than it looks in, in hindsight. You know, People sort of forget that it was really the efforts of a couple of individual journalists, in particular scholars like Clive Hamilton as well. You know, Nick McKenzie's really groundbreaking investigative reporting on political donations by Chinese Communist Party-linked property developers, uh, which, you know, according to ICAC in New South Wales, were, were in some cases potentially illegal. This was not something that was sort of led by the system working on its own. I think this was really a yeah. few individuals sticking their necks out and actually taking a lot of heat for it, but in the end, I think being proven right. And we should remember the important work of Peter Harcher at the Sydney Morning Herald and uh, John Garno as well, formerly a Herald, a Herald journalist who also was a senior advisor to Prime Minister Turnbull. This is a key point, Alex, and I think it's a good way of concluding because I think it's widely believed that Australia, under political leaders of both major parties, both Coalition and Labor, they've stared down the CCP's wolf warrior diplomacy. And, and let's conclude on this note, let me clarify, does this show that Australia stands as a model for pushing back against Chinese strategic aggression? I think it really does. You know, Peter, Peter Harcher put it, put it quite well, I thought, in his, his piece on Albanese's meeting with Xi Jinping, where he said, you know, this is what standing up to a superpower looks like. And Australia has really done a good job of that. And I think it needed, in a way, a change of government to show that this is really bipartisan, that China wasn't going to fundamentally change our policy by engaging with, you know, the Labour Party versus the Liberal Party, that the recognition that our relationship with China has fundamentally changed uh, is, is held across most of the political class. Uh, 
in Australia. Uh, and this is something that other countries are certainly looking to, but it's something that we're still working out. You know, no country has really in recent years had to go through quite the same process as Australia. Uh, there aren't really clear precedents set for how exactly you do this. So I think that Australia is still going to be constantly tested by China to see whether they can get us to compromise on, on human rights, on our commitment to free trade, uh, on our commitment to sovereignty and the integrity of our political system. Uh, but I'm confident now that, you know, there's so much political recognition of this. There's so much popular recognition of the need to be careful and cautious and considered in our engagement with China that, that we're in very good footing for the future. Well, the subject of CCP global influence is hotly contested among scholars around the world, yet somehow you've managed to distinguish your work at a very young age, Alex. Congratulations on the book and thanks so much for being on Between the Lines. Thanks so much. That was Alex Josky, author of Spies and Lies, How China's Greatest Covert Operations Fooled the World. It's published by Hardy Grant. Well, finally, Jeff Bezos, he's the Amazon founder and multi-billionaire. He says he's planning to give away to charity most of his US $124 billion net worth during his lifetime. Now, it reminds me of something that Carl Zinsmeister told me a few years ago. Now, Zinsmeister, one of America's leading historians of philanthropy, he says that the Jeff Bezoses of corporate America, they're only a small part of the philanthropy story. You know, all of the press clips, as you know, Tom, are about the Bezos and Gateses mm -hmm. and Buffetts of the world. And they are part of American philanthropy, but they're actually a very tiny part. Only 18% of all of the gifts that are made in the year in America are made through those foundations set up by wealthy men and women. And the rest come as gifts from individuals. And the average gift is about $4,000 in Australian. And again, there might be a critic who says, well, you're not going to change the world with $4,000. What good does that do? But again, you have to multiply this by this massive base. You have more than 100 million givers giving four grand each. That becomes a big hidden iceberg beneath that tip that you see in all of the reporting. And we should stress that neither Gates nor Buffett is leaving a significant amount of money in relative terms to their children, right? Let, let's talk about this specifically because it's shocking, really. Mm. So as you pointed out, the, the, the Gates fortune in total, I'm increasing every year, but it, it looks, looks like he's going to be about a $90 billion family fortune. Well, Mr. and Mrs. Gates have said that they're going to leave each of their three children $10 million. It's lovely. It's not a trivial sum. $10 million. $10 million. But do the math on that. Mm. 10 times three children is $30 million stays in the Gates family. $90 billion minus 30 goes elsewhere. So <laughs> there will be no second generation Gates dynasty. That's just the way wealth tends to be handled in, in the US. And Buffett, we have to say, supports higher taxes on the wealthy. Mm. You know, the great thing about philanthropy is you don't have to be of just one point of view. I, I don't want people to think that this is a this yeah. is a big conspiracy of conservative, you know, white male men to do. Philanthropy is as varied as the rest of society. There are crazy left-wing people and crazy right-wing people. There are people who are not political at all. There are religious people. There are hippies, you name it. <laughs> Beyond left and right. <laughs> and add Jeff Bezos's name to the very generous philanthropists. That was Carl Zinsmeister on Between the Lines in 2019. Well, that's it for another week and another year. For the next five weeks, it's Between the Lines, the summer series. Plenty of great listening for you as you revisit some of the highlights of 2022. We'll be back with a new season on January 28. Until then, I'm Tom Switzer and have a wonderful Christmas and New Year. listening to an ABC podcast. Discover more great ABC podcasts, live radio and exclusives on the ABC Listen app.